right, welcome back to another episode of Vernacular Podcast. I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. And today we are coming back at you for the first time since I think it was July 20th. Wow, so too it, long. It might be the longest hiatus in the history of the podcast, although I think we took a pretty long one when our last child was born. <laughs> yeah, this was kind of an accident though. Yeah, certainly not planned. And uh, I mean, long story short, um, my mom passed away somewhat unexpectedly. If you're a longtime listener, you've heard mention of Zach's mom having cancer. battled with cancer. Yeah. And so, um, so sadly, perhaps mercifully for her in some ways, her, her battle against uh, the scourge that is cancer came to an end last month. It, it as I mentioned, was pretty unexpected um, and some just complicated circumstances around that. But it's been a, a time of grieving for my family. We were able to lay my mom to rest in a um, beautiful funeral. Um and so we, we traveled back to the East Coast for that as well. I've made three, now three trips to the East Coast um, just in the month of August alone. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's been a busy time for us. Um, and we appreciate your, your prayers for my family and for the repose of my mom's soul. So, but anyway, um, what we're going to talk about today is actually related to a, another project of mine that I've recently started. So back in June, I started a newsletter called The Vernaculus. I don't think I've mentioned it on the podcast before. Yeah, I think we've had so many guests that we just haven't spent much time on personal pursuits. It has been a long time since we've podcasted, so maybe I have mentioned it. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but I th- it hasn't gotten prominent airtime. Again. <laughs> yeah, so so it's called The Vernaculus. You can go to Vernaculus, that's V-E-R-N-A-C-U-L-I-S-T dot substack dot com. And it's totally free. Uh, you can just subscribe there, put your email in and sign up to receive uh, interesting article uh, kind of digest from me, curated lists of articles and interesting reading, and some original kind of long form content, uh, things that I'm writing, things that I'm thinking. So uh, it's been really great so far. I've had lots of good feedback from uh, people. I'm learning a lot as I as I do it, both in you know just sort of you know practicing my writing, but uh, also just in reading these very interesting articles that I find across the web. So go ahead and sign up at vernaculist.substack.com. I'm linking to it in the show notes here, and uh, and come along for the ride. It's it's pretty exciting. Um, the most recent installment of the vernaculist was one in which I talked about a, a, an ethnic group in Northwest China that is heavily persecuted by the government. And this has received some media attention, especially recently. Uh, I think back in 2012, almost nobody would have heard about the Uyghurs. Um, over the past three years, it's gotten a lot, the, the whole issue has gotten a lot more press attention. And really over the past few months, there's been more and more attention. As of this calendar year, it seems to be more in the headlines. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. Um, and so we could talk about some of the reasons why that is, but um, it's a pretty complicated question, uh, but it's a very important one. So I wanted to put together in the vernaculist uh, kind of a long form uh, essay called Nine Questions About the Uyghurs. And I ask nine questions and then answer those nine questions. So we thought it might be good to actually talk about that very issue on this podcast. And Sally volunteered to uh, to kind of be the foil and <laughs> and ask the questions and and be my interlocutor as we go through it. So, yeah, before Zach wrote this, I had just very vague ideas of what this whole thing was about because I just had not read up about it at all or heard about it. And hearing is usually my main source of news. So I do not blame you if you don't know the answers to these questions. I certainly didn't. Or if you don't know the answers to all of these questions. So that's why we're doing this. And before I read The Vernaculous this week, I had no idea most of the details. 
you're selling yourself short, Sally. You're <laughs> always pretending to be more ignorant than you. Than well, you I think this is great to like translate your long form essay, which for some people that is the best way to get their news into a, an audio version because right. for people like me, that's actually the best way for me to get my news. Yeah. I mean, I know I have lots of subscribers to the vernaculus because it's several hundred now, which is awesome, uh, who don't listen to the podcast. And I have lots of, we have lots of podcast listeners who don't subscribe to the vernaculus. Exactly. So yeah, some people like to just, you know, have stuff to listen to as they're commuting. Others like to sit at their desk while they're pretending to work and read the vernaculars instead. So <laughs> that's more what I guess I do both things actually. Um, but anyway, so yeah, this is a very important issue. I think one thing that I was thinking about, Sally, as I was going through this is that, you know, we Americans have had a very difficult time lately with all of the stuff that's going on in the news. Yeah. And I think it's been easy to kind of ignore more na international issues. For sure. Absolutely. Unless those international issues are, are, are also about COVID. Right? Right, I think it's right. basically been like, I mean, Really look at the news, though, from any of the past several months. There's uh, obviously the election looming large, eight weeks from two days ago, I think. Uh, many people are stressed about the results of the election and what that could look like. You know, will there be a constitutional crisis if the result is not clear on election night and one or both of the candidates refuse to respect the election result, et cetera? That's, that's a pretty stressful idea. Uh, there's also, obviously, the coronavirus pandemic, ongoing since March, um, that I think has just caused a lot of people to think seriously about their, mort maybe not seriously, think frequently about their mortality and wrestle with that. It's caused a lot of lost sleep. I was reading an article in the New York Times, actually, just the other day from a dentist who was saying that that um, she, she was, uh, she practices in Manhattan and she was saying that she has treated more, uh, more fractured teeth in the past few months than at any point in her career. Wow. I guess why? previously it was normal for her to have a few a week and now she's having between like two and six per day come into her. Is that because people just waited? No. Well, that might, that might have a fa that might factor in. What she was saying is that actually people are really stressed out. So people are grinding oh, their teeth. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So this is having very real palpable in some cases, if you don't have dental insurance, expensive effects. Right. And it's not just about fractured teeth. It's about lost sleep. It's about uh, on the worst end of the spectrum. Uh, clinical depression, suicidal thoughts, uh, general, generalized anxiety, all that stuff. So there's a lot of things going on in the news. I saw pictures today of California with orange skies because of wildfires that are burning like crazy. We, Sally, of course, have had smoke uh, covering the skies of Colorado for, I don't know, close to a month now, I think. Um, it's a stressful time to be alive, perhaps. Uh, a lot of issues with police and Oh yeah, I haven't even talked about the yeah, haven't talked about the uh, yeah. the Black Lives Matter and the the stress um the stress of, you know, this I think there's certainly the initial stress from the killings, George Floyd, uh, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery. But then the cases that are cropping up from the recent Yeah, it's ongoing. Well, and then just and then just the fact that I think so many people hate each other over these issues now as well. And a lot and, of distrust. And that is stressful. Uh, yeah, and, for sure. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot going on, but I thought it was important to write about the Uyghurs because I also think it's important to just step back a little bit, you know, zoom back, uh, zoom out, I should say. You know, we, we sometimes look at our social issues or our, our whatever issues in this country through a soda straw. And it's, it's worth remembering that, you know, take COVID, for example. Yes, while it's true that maybe you might feel oppressed because you have to go to church with a mask on, let's remember that there are other people in other parts of the world who are being sent are into re-education camps because they don't subscribe fully to authoritarian ideologies, right? So- yeah, it definitely gave me a good perspective on yeah, my life. Exactly. So <laughs> I thought it could be so much worse. So I thought it was just important to to step back and 
and remind people about that or sort of, you know, educate people about that. And I mean, I'm not, I'm not like coming from a place on high educating people. I, I say in the beginning of this article, I also wanted to educate myself. Um, and so I did a lot of reading and, and looked at a lot of different resources to kind of unpack the issue here so that I could help other people understand it as well. So I learned a ton going through it and wanted to share that. So to step back for a second, what are, can you just give us like a 30 second overview of what the Uyghur issue problem is? Yeah. So maybe the, the good place to start is one of the questions I ask in my piece, which is just who are the Uyghurs? And it's, it's a strangely spelled word. U-I-G-H-U-R is the standard English convention. Sometimes you'll see U-Y instead of U-I, but U-I-G-H-U-R is normally the spelling for Uyghur. Uh, this is a, a group of people that is native to uh, what is called the Xinjiang Autonomous Region in northwestern China. Uh, so China is broken up into provinces and autonomous regions, autonomous regions being places like Xinjiang and Tibet. And so Xinjiang in the very northwestern corner is a massive, uh, massive area. I think by land area it is the largest of all the provinces and uh, autonomous regions. And that's where the Uyghurs live. They don't they don't uh, dominate the entire area, but much of Xinjiang is predominantly Uyghur. And by autonomous region, that means that they rule themselves? So so they ostensibly rule themselves, right? The idea is, same with Tibet, the idea is there is an, there is an ethnic group of people who are distinctive from the ethnic majority, the Han Chinese in the rest of mainland China. Um, this, this people, in the case of the Uyghurs, uh, does not speak Mandarin Chinese, for example. Um, they have a history and a culture that's very different from our own. And so it actually is easier for all parties if, if, if we give them sort of more deference, more capability of self-government than others have. I mean, that's, that's how it is, I think, on paper. In practice, it doesn't turn out that way, and, and right. we can talk about that. But, right. but the Uyghurs are a Turkic people, that's a large collection of ethnic groups um, that numbers about 160 million across the world um, from Turkey to Xinjiang, uh, including a lot of the former uh, Soviet socialist republics, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan. That's why their language is so similar to Uzbek? Yes, exactly. Okay. It's, it's very similar to Uzbek. Um, but they do have their own language. So it's a it's a Turkic language um, and it's because it's in that Turkic class um, of 160 million people. Now, in China, there are about 12 million Uyghurs, 11 to 12. We don't have good, good, you know, accurate counts. We have estimates of around 11 to 12 million. Globally, there are about 13 and a half million Uyghurs. So oh, okay. China has about 90, you know, depending on, on how accurate our numbers are, 80 to 90% of the global Uyghur population is in Xinjiang province. But they're only persecuted in China. Well, I mean, I as guess far as we know, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, they they might be persecuted elsewhere, but most of the places in which they find themselves, um, they're either in uh, relatively free Western democracies, yeah, or they're in um, places like Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan where they are not going to be in an ethnic minority, at least in the same way that they are in China. So that's who the Uyghurs are, and they are traditionally Muslim. Is that correct? Yes, exactly. So um, long... Is this kind of where the animosity stems from? Well, so I think the animosity is actually twofold. It's a good question because um, anytime you have an ethnic group that is very, very different from... I mean, you can even look at pictures of Uyghurs. Uh, Some of them have, you know, fair eyes and fair skin and look almost European. They definitely don't look Chinese. Right, exactly. What you think of as Chinese. Yeah, so, so, you know, certainly they look different. I mean, and we know... We were just talking about uh, Black Lives Matter issues. We know that it's human nature that you're sort of suspicious of people who don't look like you and don't act like you and don't share your your culture, your language, etc. So there's already this 
this problem, you know, I'm, I'm putting problem in quotes, it's not actually a problem, but it's a, it's a problem for an authoritarian regime, I think. Like the quote unquote Jewish problem in right. Nazi Germany. Right. And then the second thing is the religion, which you mentioned. And so, you know, it might, it might be a little bit of an issue in another country, uh, in a predominantly Christian country, perhaps you, you, you certainly do, you know, for example, in some countries in Africa, you see some, I think, persecution of Muslims in Christian countries. It's not the norm. I, I would really not say that, but we've seen it happen. And so it's also the case that when you are a, you are a religious minority, you experience some persecution from the, I mean, Christians in the Middle East know this as well. Um, but in, in this case, I think it's even doubly so with an authoritarian regime. We know anecdotally, we've all heard stories about how hard it is to be a Christian in China. And it's the same exact thing being a Muslim in China. Bottom line, the Chinese state is distinctly secular, stridently, I would even say secular. Um, and, and part of that is because they demand, they demand absolute fealty and allegiance to the communist party and to the regime. That's uh, their religion. Right, exactly. Whereas someone who is a person of faith recognizes or claims that they have an allegiance that is higher than that of the party or that of the regime. So you can see why that would be, would obviously be a problem and why this group of people who is ethnically distinctive from Han Chinese and religiously distinctive from the you know party line in China uh, would face problems. So what give it then kind of an overview of their history in China leading up to the present day? Yeah, well, I mean, as is the case with uh, most persecuted groups as well, um, the history of Uyghurs in what is now mainland China long predates the Chinese regime as we know it today. Uh, in that region of the world, the presence of the Uyghur people goes back to probably the 5th century AD. they persecuted since then? Um, no, actually. Okay. So that was 1,500 years ago. Um, that was actually, uh, you know, 6th century was, was before the birth of Islam. Um, and so obviously they were not Muslim then because they couldn't be. Um, and so there was this uh, uh, Uyghur Khaganate, which is basically sort of a network of city-states across that region, uh, basically from what is now uh, Western Xinjiang, autonomous region, um, all the way to Manchuria, so kind of stretching across northern China. Um, and then eventually uh, those, those, some of those kingdoms and city-states kind of converted to Islam here and there. But then eventually the Mongols came down, right? That's why the Great Wall of China was built to protect against Mongolian invasion. The Mongols were very fierce warriors and conquerors. They conquered the Uyghur Khaganate um, and ruled it from, I think, the beginning of the 13th century forward for about 500 years. Wow. Um, and so in, in the 19th century, then the Qing dynasty came to power in mainland China, um, pushed back what was then Mongol ruled Uyghur territory namely what is now Xinjiang Autonomous Region, um, and, and, uh, and did that. So then it was sort of under the rule of the, the Xing Dynasty. Um, and and uh, actually, this is interesting too. It's called Xinjiang Province, and it's X-I-N-J-I-A-N-G, which is from two Mandarin words that means new frontier. So, so oh. even today, Xinjiang Province uh, inherits the Mandarin naming uh, from the uh, Xing Dynasty that means new frontier. Wow. Yeah. Pretty interesting. And I'm saying Xing Dynasty. It's probably more like Qing Dynasty, but it's Q-I-N-G. So the, the Qing or Xing Dynasty um, eventually collapsed in 1911. And that's when we got the birth of the Republic of China. The Republic of China, it, its political legacy now is Taiwan. Um, because then followed the war between the Republic of China and Mao Zedong's uh, People's Republic of China. 
So uh, Chiang Kai-shek and the Nationalists versus Mao Zedong and the Communists. Chiang Kai-shek and the Nationalists lost and basically got exiled to the island of Taiwan, where they. And that's this is exactly the story of why the Taiwanese still claim China and why mainland China still claims Taiwan. Um, it's basically like a, a stalemated Cold War. Uh, that was never fully resolved. But so the Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists are exiled to Taiwan. Uh, Mao Zedong and the communists remain on mainland China or in mainland China. Um, and then we he- then we see the the implementation of absolute communism. Um, and I think that's when the problems for the Uyghurs really begin because the communist regime is so anti-religious, as we know, and so suspicious of outsiders and political dissidents. So the Soviet Union collapses, and what happens for the Uyghur people? Because so they've up until this point been ind- not been independent. No, no, they're not independent at all. I mean, I think they're 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 far away in northwest China. I mean, this is very far away from the population centers uh, of you know along the coast, uh, Shanghai, uh, Beijing, um, uh, and so I think they're not they don't they don't experience a ton of oppression there, but they're certainly not welcome. They're not insiders by any means. They're not Han Chinese. Um, and after the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, which some people thought sort of precipitated the fall of communism globally, uh, people thought that that things might get better for the Uyghurs. But in fact, that was not the case. Not so much. Um, in the 1990s, actually, things got really bad for the Uyghurs and the communist government in China started to say very more much more seriously and intentionally, we need to go after these guys or, you know, control the security problem. So they issued what was then a top secret document. I, I don't think it's been declassified yet, but it's, it has leaked. So you can find this online, a top secret document um, about Xinjiang called document number seven. And uh, it was, it was a piece of government policy that just called for um, intensified controls over religious activity throughout the region. According to one source I found, um, and uh, and that that began a, a kind of slow and crushing campaign against um, people for various political and religious offenses. I found a report from Amnesty International that said just in the two year period between 1997 and 1999, the CCP executed 200 people in that region um, for those various offenses. So we're we're talking about political executions now at the tail end of the 20th century. This is not Soviet, um, you know, Stalin era Soviet times. This is uh, post Soviet Union fall, uh, just before. You know, Y2K, uh, the CCP is executing hundreds of people for various political and religious offenses. So control is code for execution. Oh, of course. Yeah. I mean, this is communism we're talking about. And then, uh, and that continued, I mean, past the turn of the century, Human Rights Watch, I found another source. They said that this is uh, one, this is the only area of China in which um, execution of political prisoners is common. And they use the word common. Um, And and the stuff just continued after that. There was an anti-crime, well, ostensibly anti-crime initiative called the strike hard campaign, which sounds terrible. Um, and, uh, and it, it just emphasized basically going after, uh, Uyghurs. It was also largely crime was allegiance to something other than the yeah. communist government. Yeah, exactly. I mean, in the name of anti-crime, the regime was going after Uyghur people, uh, you know, calling them political distance, even if their only crime was being Uyghur. Um, and so that was, uh, that was the problem there. And so this continued through the first decade of the 21st century. And then Xi Jinping came, came to power and, and people have looked at Xi Jinping as a very pragmatic leader, but actually he's an interesting guy because he's one of the most powerful leaders in China period ever. Um, certainly not as powerful as chairman Mao, but, uh, but prop, I would say probably more powerful than uh, Deng Xiaoping who had the benefit of like directly succeeding Mao and having Mao's blessing essentially. So she's a very, 
uh, very, very powerful person. Um, some people actually think he may become the next chairman and the only chairman since Chairman Mao. I mean, there's something, um, there's not much uh, functional in that title, but it's a huge title of respect because it acknowledges that person is sort of on the same plane as Chairman Mao, who's- adopt that for himself because well he doesn't have the power to appropriate for himself i think um the communist party and the the Politburo have to sort of endow him with that title but he's he's accruing so much power um that that people think this might be the case i mean he's already the head of the military he's already the president obviously he's the general secretary of the ccp so he already right there uh holds three of the most powerful probably the three most powerful titles in china or positions in in china and uh and there's there's perhaps no barriers from him acquiring that fourth, you know, kind of honorific, but perhaps most meaningful title in uh, chairman. So pow- part of that gathering of power has been increased oppression of the Uyghur population. Yeah. So again, when he came to power, people thought, you know, because Ding, Ding Xiaoping actually following Mao was compared to Mao. I mean, I'm not saying uh, Xiaoping was a good guy, but compared to Mao was a relatively open person. Uh, maybe not open person, but he was someone who saw at least the strategic advantage of sort of opening China to the world, um, you know, in the same way that perhaps Gorbachev and the Soviet Union did. Uh, and people thought that I think she was sort of maybe cut from the same cloth as Xiaoping, but um, he doesn't appear to be. <laughs> There's lots of problems with China now. Uh, we could talk, you know, about far more issues than just the Uyghur people here. But in the case of the Uyghurs, um, he, he's signaled in the first four, four years of his kind of uh, ascent to power, he signaled his seriousness about dealing with the Uyghur people. Um, there was a guy named Cheng, or there is a guy named Chen Quanguo, uh, uh, who was in charge of Tibet. Um, he was basically the, the uh, Communist Party secretary for Tibet, which is again an autonomous region. And he was responsible there for cracking down on Tibetans and making their life very difficult because, again, the Chinese are very suspicious of them as as non-Han Chinese Buddhists, right? They're, non, they're not, not ethnically or religiously aligned to the Communist Party in China. So uh, Chen Guanguo, uh, Guanguo did his thing in Tibet, and then he got a new posting uh, from Xi, and, uh, and she had sent him to do the same exact thing, or take the same exact position uh, in Xinjiang. So that was a harbinger of things to come. So what is that position? What does that mean then for the Uyghurs now? So it's really bad. Uh, it's, I mean, it's really, really bad. This is one of the most um, most serious and consistent and sort of en masse human rights crises in the world today. Um, let me read to you a few parts of my, my vernacular article. This is from uh, question seven, in which I ask, what is life like for the Uyghurs now? Uh, the first thing is I quote this um, long, long article in the Atlantic called the Panopticon is already here. And it talks about how the Chinese state has um, basically prototyped it's, uh, it's artificial intelligence, um, well, panopticon, you know, all-seeing system in Xinjiang to keep track of the Uyghurs. Um, and this says, in the near future, every person who enters a public space anywhere in China could be identified instantly by AI matching them to an ocean of personal data, including their every text communication and their body's one-of-a-kind protein construction schema. So that's for China writ large. China has very ambitious plans to monitor its population to that extent. That sounds like a movie I've seen. Right. But then, and that was a quote from the Atlantic article. The Atlantic article continues and says, a crude version of such a system is already in operation in China's northwestern territory of Xinjiang, where more than one million Muslim Uyghurs have been imprisoned, the largest internment of an ethnic religious minority since the fall of the Third Reich. Once Xi perfects the system in Xinjiang, no technological limitations will prevent him from extending AI surveillance across China. 
Purchasing prayer rugs online, storing digital copies of Muslim books, and downloading sermons from a favorite imam are all risky activities. If a Uyghur were to use WeChat's payment system to make a donation to a mosque, authorities might take note. So your your comparison earlier, Sally, you know, saying comparing this to the uh, the way that Nazi Germany viewed the Jewish people, I think that's apt, and it's crazy. I mean, I think that bears repeating that this is the largest, the, the potentially one million Uyghurs in China who are imprisoned there, and. That, that possibly undersells it. I've seen numbers as low as 800,000, you know, as quote low as 800,000, but as high as 2 million. So somewhere in that range, we're pretty confident, are imprisoned Uyghurs uh, in Xinjiang province. The largest internment of an ethnic religious minority since World War II. That's crazy. It is, yeah. And that's going on right now in 2020. But up until recently, China denied that this imprisonment was taking place. They did. Yeah, I'll, I'll get to that in a sec. Uh, let me just read a little bit more of this. So this is now me writing. I say, the list of horrors goes on. There are tales of Uyghurs being subjected to involuntary genetic data collection. People can't leave their neighborhoods without their absence being digitally recorded. Police force Uyghurs to download surveillance apps on their phones. And sadly, it isn't only about the digital panopticon. This isn't just a government experiment gone wrong. Uyghur women are checked by the state for pregnancies and sometimes forced to abort their babies or undergo an IUD procedure. Unauthorized babies are sometimes taken from their parents who are promptly punishment or punished. And that isn't where the government's intrusion into Uyghur family life ends. And then I have another quote from an article that says, the Chinese government has moved thousands of Han Chinese big brothers and sisters into homes in Xinjiang's ancient Silk Road cities to monitor Uyghurs' forced assimilation to mainstream Chinese culture. They eat meals with the family and some big brothers sleep in the same bed as the wives of, det- of detained Uyghur men. So, uh, so, so the government has moved Han Chinese, that's the ethnic majority, into Xinjiang province to babysit the Uyghurs and make it's sure like they're not... not undercover agents, just right well, out there. Well, I mean, I guess they are undercover agents by the fact that... But everyone knows what they're there for. Right, yeah, exactly. And so there's a... So I found an article by... Actually, someone sent me... One of my readers sent me an article by an anthropologist who had sat down with these people and, like, asked them, you know, try to sort of kind of delve into the dynamics between these, like, Han Chinese babysitter agents and their... Uyghur quote hosts and, and how that creates a lot of complicating complicated dynamics as you can imagine definitely I mean it seems like they're like prison guards sort of right well and speaking of prisons so uh, on the topic of this internment um, there are these uh, re- these these internment camps um, uh, in which you know we don't really know what goes on in there but it's really really bad as you said Sally the PRC first denied this entirely several years ago and now they say that this happens but I found this totally ridiculous quote where this uh, the, the governor of Xinjiang province is saying, no, these are just training institutions. We really care about the mental health of people. There are cafeterias that give them nutritious diets. All the dorms have radios, televisions, air conditioning. There's facilities for basketball, volleyball, table tennis, stages it's for like theater. everything you could want. Yeah, it's lux- living it, in the lap of luxury. It's totally ridiculous. And I mean, it's, it's especially ridiculous considering that China denied these things even existed until two years ago. And now they're saying like, oh, no, they do exist, but they're wonderful. So moreover, we have pictures and I have one picture in the in the article here. We have pictures of Uyghurs who are in these internment camps. They are in basically prisoners clothing. They're being forced to sit all the same way. China calls these re-education camps, but it's pretty clearly what what they are. Um, Scott Busby, who's the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor, testified in front of the U.S. Senate in 2018, and I excerpt his testimony here in which he says, uh, "Let me just—I won't quote—I won't quote it at length, but he says uh, he lists all these things as things that are that we think are happening in these camps: mandatory classes where detainees are required to recite communist slogans. Um, if they fail to quickly learn these lessons, they get beaten and deprived of food." 
There are reports of the use of stress positions, cold cells, and sleep deprivation, other forms of torture, uh, cruel, inhumane, or degrading treatment, including sexual abuse, uh, forcing detainees to renounce Islam and embrace the Chinese Communist Party, uh, ensuring that no uh, no um, detainees pray, even if they're just sitting in their own bed in the middle of the night. Twenty four seven surveillance. Yep, forcibly medicating people with unknown substances, um, forcing them to eat pork and drink alcohol, which uh, be against their religion, yeah, which violate the tenets of Islam. Um, so some really, really bad things that are going on in these, quote, re-education camps. And you just constantly, so, but not all the Uyghurs are in this camp because there's only 1 million and there's 12 million altogether, correct? Yes, that's correct. So yeah, everyone so, else outside of these camps is just on edge waiting to be picked up? Yeah, I mean, so everyone's still under constant surveillance because of that panopticon that that I talked about and that the Atlantic article is written about. Um, and also we know one of the functions of the Han Chinese that move in with them and sort of babysit them is to identify who needs to be reeducated. So if they see some, you know, quote, troublesome behaviors, Hey, this person's praying a lot. This person's going to a mosque. This person's maybe donating some money and buying a prayer rug or whatever. Um, if they get reported on by their, the Han Chinese babysitters, then there, they could be moved to the camp. Then they could be selected for, for reeducation. Um, it, it's a very disturbing thing. And, you know, also it feels very Orwellian, doesn't it? Like the yes. fact that, um, not just the panopticon element of it, but the part that, that really bothers me, I think is that, that Han Chinese people have bought into these ideas so much that, you know, that they're so thoroughly indoctrinated themselves that these agents of the, the communist government would select these people for internment. I think in most cases, probably honestly, legitimately thinking that they are doing them a favor, right? Like you need to relearn the, the virtues of, the motherland essentially right you need to you need to understand uh what makes communism go and and you know it's very much i think like what winston faced in 1984 when he was turned in by by people that he lived with they, they just thought he was they were doing him a favor right because, there were examples of children turning in their parents thinking that they were yeah. doing good for them yeah terrifying um so it really does remind me of that and it's it's very chilling and while this is getting some attention, this isn't getting much attention. And the the last thing I talk about in the piece um, online of the vernaculars is that I'm just really frustrated by the hypocrisy of not Americans individually, although I'm sure that happens, but, but certain like companies, American firms. Yeah. Yeah. So a few months ago, this stuff hit the news because the customs and border patrol uh, rejected a shipment or impounded a shipment of Chinese goods it was a bunch of makeup stuff. So I don't know, wigs, fake eyelashes. I don't know. Um, but it was suspected to have been made with Uyghur forced labor, including perhaps hair taken from Uyghur detainees. And there were reports of Uyghurs being shaved before entering the reeducation camp. So, so that would check out. Um, and so this is really horrible. And of course, you know, there's, there's the immediate platitudes, uh, from all companies that do business in China, but the New York times had a story about this very thing. And they said, uh, yeah, the supply chains of all these prominent companies uh, are intricately bound up in China. They do business in China. Um, it says, uh, we've found evidence that connects China's forced detention of Turkic-speaking Uyghurs to the supply chains of Adidas, Lacoste, H&M, Abercrombie & Fitch, Ralph Lauren, and the PVH Corporation, which owns labels including Tommy Hilfiger and Calvin Klein. So this isn't even about these companies use Chinese labor. This is about these companies' supply chains are connected to Xinjiang, uh, and specifically forced you know forcibly detained uyghurs in xinjiang and these are major companies that we buy stuff from and you know lacoste thinks it's okay to sell you a polo shirt for a hundred dollars uh but they're okay with using the the slave labor of detained uyghurs in xinjiang it's absolutely disgusting and it's scary because if they're not being upfront about it then how do you know for sure that by 
by frequenting those or by purchasing anything from those companies that you're not participating. Totally. Yeah. And then, I mean, um, the NBA, uh, is, has also, you know, played both sides of this as well. They have tried to be, you know, to, to reach out to China, but, the, but when Daryl Morey, the general manager of the Houston Rock, Rockets last year criticized, um, or he didn't even criticize. I don't think, I think he just voiced solidarity, um, solidarity, uh, for the, uh, pro-democracy protesters in Hong Kong who were protesting the authoritarian tactics of the Chinese regime and cracking down on uh, Hong Kong dissidents. Daryl Morey voices his um, solidarity with the Hong Kong pro-democracy people, and the NBA um, basically apologized to China for that and did not give Daryl Morey any top cover whatsoever. Um, I don't know if they forced him to retract his tweet, but he did retract his tweet you know, there was a ton of pressure and I'm sure that they pressured him to do that as well. Basically just sort of stay in your lane, right? Your lane is not criticizing the Chinese regime. The NBA has run basketball camps in China uh, that have come under criticism for human rights abuses. And that was reported by ESPN. And then Disney, the parent company of ESPN, uh, just filmed their live action Mulan film. Yeah, this is crazy. Which I wanted to see, but now I don't anymore because it was filmed on location in Xinjiang province um, and the problem with it is not just that it was done in Xinjiang province, but that they actually relied on support from propaganda arms of the communist government. And we know that because those propaganda arms are listed in the film credits. That's crazy. Yeah. Wow. So so that's just more more examples of of hypocrisy here. Um, we well, know we know about mentioning Google and Apple. Yeah. I mean, we know that those companies are fully complicit in those things. I mean, Apple recently published a brand new commitment to human rights that doesn't mention China even once, despite the fact that, you know, the vast majority of its supply chain is in China. Uh, until I think last year, two years ago, Google was actively developing a censored version of search for the Chinese government to use behind the great firewall, as they call it. Wow. Um, yeah, so I think there's just cowardice all around, um, and it's totally ridiculous that that we can't recognize this and call it out for what it is and what's happening. Um, but that's that's the story. I think, um, you know, just something, to, something that's worth thinking about is that it's very easy for us to, to simultaneously get so wrapped up in stories that have almost nothing to do with us and to totally ignore stories that ha- that also have nothing to do with us, but that are just sort of inconvenient. And so, you know, one example that comes to mind is I already mentioned these San Francisco fires. I don't live in San Francisco. I am personally unaffected by them, period, dot. They have zero effect on me. Unless I'm like a 49ers fan and the, the game this weekend gets canceled because of smoke particulate, whatever. But I think most people in America are not personally affected by the fires. And that's not to say that they're bad. It's not to say that we can't be concerned, that we shouldn't pray for people who are affected, that we can't give aid, all that all that stuff's good. But what I'm saying is like, we, we tend to fixate on those things because they seem like they affect us more. And then we ignore these other things like the plight of the Uyghurs in China where 1 million and very possibly more than 1 million people are forcibly interned by an authoritarian communist regime that we know has no problem executing political prisoners. And- 10, 11 million more are at risk of that. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so this is a this is a huge issue. It's a huge human rights issue. This needs more attention. The Chinese government needs, well, I mean, the Chinese government needs to just uh, collapse. But the Chinese government, at the very least, needs to stop doing this nonsense, stop persecuting people. It needs to acknowledge its wrongs, and and the U.S. needs to needs to force it to stand do that. up against them. Um, yeah, so so uh, I think this is a really important issue. I'm glad we could talk about it today. And uh, I encourage you to go to the vernaculist to check it out.
yeah, you can give you more details than what we've shared here in our 35 minutes. (laughs) Yeah. And that's one example of the vernaculist. That was kind of a special edition. Normally the vernaculist is a curated list of really interesting articles with some commentary um, on a variety of topics, on a variety of topics from those things. So if that sounds like it's interesting to you, go ahead and sign up vernaculist.substack.com. And again, it's totally free. Uh, And I will link it in the show notes here. All right, Sally, did we miss anything? Oh, I'm sure we did. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure we did too. All right. Well, thanks for listening to vernacular podcast. Uh, we'll be back again soon. Uh, a busy September ahead as well, and actually October. So we're gonna we're gonna we have plans. We have plans. We have yeah. programming ideas. We do. Um, so we'll get to it when we get to it. Uh, we'll be here, planning away and doing other things. But we'll be back, uh, back in your ears as soon as we can. As soon as we can. <laughs> All right. For Vernacular Podcast, I'm Zach and I'm Sally. Have a great week. I'm by